If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Vosh Bodie. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Abby Dees. Well, you've probably heard that there's stuff heating up in North Carolina, and we will talk live with Crystal Richardson, who's the Director of Advocacy at Equality North Carolina, who is fighting this Terrible HB2. Oh, the South. Yes, I know, but they're going to win. <laughs> and I bring a piece from my travels throughout the Caribbean, because as we look at our rights as LGBT people in the States and how far we've come, we have to remember that not everyone is as fortunate as us. And WonderCon is the annual comic book, science fiction, and motion picture convention that used to be held in San Francisco. And then it moved to Anaheim, and this year was held in Los Angeles. Don't worry if you missed it, because IMRU was there, and we have a report from the convention floor. A week from tonight, HBO will air a documentary on photographer Robert Maplethorpe, whose homoerotic work fueled a national debate over public funding of the arts. Tonight, we talk to the gay power couple behind the film, Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado. But first, the national and international news from This Way Out. I'm John Dyer V. And I'm Sarah Sweeney. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending March 26, 2016. The professional association that represents more than 200,000 psychiatrists worldwide issued its strongest statement yet this week urging the decriminalization of private, consensual, adult same-gender sex. The World Psychiatric Association called such laws harmful and discriminatory. The statement described LGBT people as valued members of society who have the same rights and responsibilities as all other citizens, and said the new position paper was prompted by the growing controversies around sexuality in many parts of the world. It also cited the World Health Organization's definition of homosexuality as a normal variant of human sexuality. The statement urged a ban on so-called conversion therapies as harmful and lacking scientific efficacy, and called on every nation to recognize LGBT rights as human, civil, and political rights and implement hate crime and anti-discrimination laws. It's unclear what impact, if any, the World Psychiatric Association statement will have on governments around the world. The group membership does include 138 national psychiatric associations and more than 200,000 members from 118 countries. 
In other news, overwhelming Republican majorities in both chambers of the North Carolina state legislature passed on March 24th what is probably the worst anti-LGBT legislation in recent memory. It bans municipalities and local governments from enacting any law affecting people or issues that are not covered by state law. The specific target was an LGBT rights ordinance enacted in the city of Charlotte, but it also prevents other localities from passing similar laws. North Carolina state law does not protect LGBT people from discrimination. Some critics complain that the sweeping new measure would even forbid local governments from passing minimum wage laws that exceed the amount in state statutes. In an obvious attack on transgender people, the legislation also requires school students to use the restrooms, locker rooms, and other campus facilities that correspond to their birth gender. Republican Governor Pat McRory signed the measures into law almost immediately. Dozens of major companies, ranging from American Airlines to ESPN, had condemned North Carolina's new laws. It's also prompted expressions of concern from the National Basketball Association, which is scheduled to hold its 2017 All-Star Game in Charlotte, and the NCAA, which plans to hold some men's college basketball tournament events in the state in 2017 and 2018. Some of Hollywood's biggest conglomerates are adding to the corporate voices urging Georgia's Republican governor, Nathan Deal, to veto an anti-LGBT bill there. It passed in both chambers of the state legislature and would allow businesses, nonprofits, and individuals to discriminate against LGBT people based on religious belief. The list of opponents includes Disney, Marvel, and AMC, all of whom have threatened to boycott the state if the bill becomes law. Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy 2 and Captain America Civil War were each filmed in Atlanta, as is AMC's popular The Walking Dead TV series. Several other studios, including 20th Century Fox, Lionsgate, The Weinstein Company, and Time Warner, have urged Governor Deal to veto the measure, and leaders of Hilton Hotels and Dell have done the same. The National Football League has also suggested that it might ban the state from hosting future Super Bowl games if the bill becomes law. Breaking news. Georgia Governor Nathan Deal held a press conference this morning and announced, I will veto House Bill 757. Thank you. But as expected, Republican Governor Sam Brownback signed a bill in Kansas this week that allows student groups at the state's public colleges and universities to deny membership to certain individuals based on sincerely held religious beliefs without penalty. Proponents argued that the measure simply prevents Muslims and other non-Christians from trying to join Christian faith-based groups. But the law also allows student groups to discriminate against LGBT people for the same religious beliefs reason. Brownback, who has a long anti-gay record, actually held a celebratory signing ceremony surrounded by beaming lobbyists for the Kansas Catholic Conference and the Family Policy Alliance of Kansas. In better news for sexual minorities a Tennessee legislative committee rejected a so-called bathroom bill this week that would have required transgender students in public schools and state universities to use the restrooms, locker rooms, and other sex-segregated facilities designated for the gender they were assigned at birth. Several lawmakers told reporters that they had changed their mind about supporting the bill after hearing from transgender students and their parents about the harm the proposal would cause. Mara Kiesling of the National Center for Transgender Equality celebrated the move. 
When lawmakers and government officials listen to trans people and their families and find out who they are, she said, they understand how unnecessary this legislation is. But similar bathroom bills continue to percolate in several other U.S. states. Senators in Nebraska rejected a bill this week to ban workplace bias in the Cornhusker state based on sexual orientation and gender identity. The vote was 26 to 18. Opponents argued that the proposal would have given special rights to LGBT people and claimed that discrimination is not a problem in Nebraska. Supporters worried that the state would not attract the best talent to its workforce without such protections. Both the Omaha and Lincoln Chambers of Commerce supported the measure. Its sponsor, Senator Adam Morfeld of Lincoln, said he would continue to introduce the bill as long as he is a senator. That's News Wrap for the week ending March 26, 2016, produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm John Dyer V. And I'm Sarah Sweeney. You can hear all 30 minutes of This Way Out on free podcasts at thiswayout.org and on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. As you heard in the news, this month, the city of Charlotte, North Carolina, passed an anti-discrimination ordinance protecting the rights of LGBT people there, and it covered both sexual orientation and gender identity. Four days ago, in response to Charlotte's new law, state state legislators called an emergency special session of the General Assembly. Just 12 hours later, North Carolina passed House Bill 2, one of the most anti-LGBT laws in recent memory. And just this morning, Equality North Carolina, along with the ACLU of North Carolina and three other plaintiffs, filed suit challenging HB 2 in federal court. We just so happen to have on the phone with us Crystal Richardson, who is the Director of Advocacy at Equality North Carolina. Crystal, are you there? Hi, yes, I am. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for calling. It. I know it's 10 p.m. over there, but thank you for staying up and talking to us. Um, you guys do stuff fast in North Carolina. Uh, apparently, apparently we like to uh, rush a bill in, in just 12 hours to get things done here. <laughs> Could you briefly explain what HB2 does? Yes. So HB2 is a bill that passed, uh, I think, just this past Wednesday um, that basically says that um, you have to use the bathroom that correlates with your biological sex, and that is defined as uh, what is on your birth certificate. Um, And then that applies to public accommodations and um, uh, employment. So uh, lots of things going on there. And then it also impacts a living wage. So um, it's a bill that would, you know, take away non-discrimination protections um, for a number of folks in North Carolina um, in various cities and counties, um, particularly those that have already passed. Um, some protections, and and it would prevent 
other municipalities like uh, Charlotte from passing any type of ordinance such as the one um, that uh, passed in Charlotte. So basically it's saying that any sort of local action to protect people's rights, and it doesn't just have to be LGBT rights, is invalid automatically if it's not in line with the state laws or lack of laws. Exactly. And I think some of the um, legislatures, uh, you know, they, they brought that up, uh, particularly one uh, mentioned, you know, hey, this impacts veteran rights. I'm concerned about that. Another uh, um, representative from Orange County said, hey, you know, this is similar to an ordinance that we tried to pass a couple of years ago um, where you uh, try to take away local um, authority. So I think they're just really using these um, LGBT issues and, and really it's um, gender identity and sexual orientation that are the categories being added. And they're just using that as a wedge issue. It's an election year. So uh, unfortunately, you know, this seems to be something that, um, you know, folks are using to as their platform. Why do you think that this prompted an emergency session? I mean, couldn't they have at least waited until April to do this? Um, what what was scaring them so much that this happened had to happen in in this forty two thousand dollar emergency? I read that it cost for that session to be convened. Yeah, I mean to call a special session is absolutely ridiculous. You know, we're, we're not calling uh, special sessions to increase teachers' pay or uh, minimum wage or anything that is really critical to a lot of. North Carolinians, but we're um, unfortunately able to call a special session to stop this. And what I think it is, is just, it's it's fear. Um, I, I really think that um, this the ordinance is, is due to uh, be effective April 1st. And so the, you know, a lot of the folks pushing this bill said, well, we have to stop it before it begins. And so um, the short session in North Carolina begins at the end of April. So um, they said it was to prevent um, that and to provide for the safety of others. But uh, I mean, you know, particularly of women and children, but we already have those laws on the books and we don't have any laws protecting us from being fired for um, being who we are, for being gay or transgender. We can get married in our state and fired the very next day just for posting our pictures, you know. And so I think non-discrimination protections and employment in other areas beyond when we go to restaurants, when we go out with our family on vacations, not to be turned around from a hotel, you know, this just a lot of uh, people think this is just about a wedding cake and potential yeah. litigation, and it's not about that, you know. Folks have no recourse at all here to track um, discrimination protections, and this ordinance would also uh, allow that uh, for the Human uh, Relations Committee here in Charlotte. So uh, it, it is just so much more. It protects familial status, marital status, um, but you never really hear about that in the media because folks are so focused on the bathroom issue right. and we're just not really paying attention to transgender rights. One of the things, uh, and you have filed, your organization along with ACLU of North Carolina just filed suit this morning in federal court challenging this. I, but I noticed that that case has been assigned to a judge that was appointed by George W. Bush. Are you worried about this? Yeah, we noticed. <laughs> so, yeah, um, you know we're we're so hopeful. We 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 think we have uh, some strong arguments, and um, you know we're we're just going to lean on that. So uh, very hopeful for a strong outcome. 
Crystal, this is Vash Bodhi. I have a question about how North Carolinians responded once this passed. What was, what did you see? What, what did people, how did people respond? Oh my gosh, I wish you could have been there. It was really, <laughs> really, uh, honestly amazing to see all the different groups come together. We had several different protests on equality, North Carolina, ACLU, excuse me, ACLU of North Carolina, um, and the Human Rights Campaign had a rally at a local church uh, near the Capitol. Um, so it was a place for folks to, to turn out and really just show solidarity and support for uh, showing out at the polls in November, uh, <laughs> ready to elect a pro-equality governor um, and really just talk about the need to be more visible in the community. And, and so that was great. And then outside of the governor's mansion, we, there was another um, more visible protest of folks, just, you know, different groups coming together, the, the whole spectrum of the LGBTQIA and all the many other letters. Um, and our allies, you know, our, our cis folks came out. And so um, it was really amazing to see so many people. I know at the church we had over 500, mm-hmm. and I imagine um, outside the governor's mansion it was probably, you know, even more than that. You know, Crystal, um, this is such a terrible lot, but there's something really inspiring about that, and the fact that this is also really an example of all the letters coming together and having mm-hmm. a common cause for this. So maybe maybe that points a sign to some success about this. Please keep us posted um, on this case. We may reach out to you again to see how it's going, and um, we wish send our best to North Carolina. You guys are fighting the good fight for us. Yeah. Thank oh, you. Thank you so much. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying thank you very much for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much. I know this is happening to um, a lot of folks across the country, so we're all in this together, and Absolutely. I'm happy to keep you posted. So, Absolutely. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank have, you, guys. Have a nice night. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Wow. I mean, you know, there's a Mahatma Gandhi was quoted as saying, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. And we are seeing that repeated yep. constantly. So it is exciting that they passed this and we are seeing this response. So It still seems weirdly impossible it even happened, though. No, but it's the inevitable blowback to our successes, yeah. I think. So we mm-hmm. got to stick together. And it sounds like they are sticking together in North Carolina. And everyone is joining in. I mean, we're yeah. getting more allies. And that's really because it's time to win. It's yeah. time to win. Well, although we have issues here in the States with we our do. rights and, you know, getting full equality, Our issues pale in comparison to what's going on on some of these Caribbean islands where it's just incredible to go back in time with how our rights are. It's a good way of putting it. Exactly. And who is there? Our man on the radio, Vaj Bodhi. So let's hear it. In the Lesser Antilles, between the French territories of Guadeloupe and Martinique, there is a small, beautiful, independent island known as the Commonwealth of Dominica. This island is a nature lover's paradise, but for the LGBT population, being who they are puts their life in danger. Fueled by images and lifestyles seen on smartphones and the internet, a small group of Dominicans are standing up and paving the way for freedom and equality for all. Tell me who you are and what you do with regards to why you are here talking to me today. My name is Sylvester John Baptiste. Currently, I am the coordinator 
for the Caribbean HIV and its partnership, Dominica Chapter. We are an LGBT organization working on HIV prevention work, PLHIV. We do sex workers. We work with the LGBT populations here in Dominica. There's Chap St. Lucia, Chap St. Vincent, Chap Antigua, Chap in St. Kitts, Chap in Grenada. But we're the Dominica Chapter. We've been in existence for over 10 years where we do programs on the prevention of transmission of HIV, public education, and we sensitize and humanize issues facing the key populations. We do advocacy in terms of policy and legal reform to promote equality and universal access to health. And we facilitate advocacy and human rights violations among the LGBT community. This is generally what CHAP is. How many active members would you say you have in CHAP? 50. How do people become active in CHAP? We have community meetings and there is an application form that we have developed. So if you want to be a member, you can come speak with us. We give you one, fill it up and enroll you. We are a very young group. The executive members are very young, so we're trying our best. How did CHAP come about? A few LGBT persons from the Caribbean decided that we want to have a voice. They want to fight for LGBT persons. So they've met and they formed this organization, Caribbean HIV Venice Partnership. I'm so happy to be here talking to you. Ten years ago, you would not get me to have this interview with you. The situation here cripples us to being out there because of our laws and our culture. There is this level of fear that one day somebody might be charged under that law. What law is it that you're talking about? The Bogri law, which is, falls under the Sexual Offense Act. To your knowledge, has anyone ever been prosecuted under that law? No. I'm not sure if you were made aware of the situation on the cruise ship in 2012, when you could actually see from the vantage point of the taxi drivers when these two tourists on the cruise ship were seen actually having sex and they were brought before the courts. It would take a lengthy process to actually try them under the Bogri Act. They were just charged for indecent exposure, I think it was. So in terms of consenting adults, no. What is the population of Dominica? Just about 71,000. How many LGBTQI people would you say are on mm. Dominica? Most persons don't identify themselves as LGBT. This is based on our culture. Most of the young guys, some of them are very bold about their sexuality. But when you ask them, are you gay, they will tell you no. But a part of them still, because of society, will go around and play around with females. So, realistically, I would say 20-25% of the population, because we are very hidden. What is it like to be a gay or lesbian person on Dominica? It's challenging. You have to be on your guard. You have to be aware of what is going on in society. And you need to be confident. If you lack confidence, you lack that self-esteem. Being part of the LGBT community in Dominica is going to be very difficult. For some of us, we have been doing very fine. But someone new coming out from the closet, they need to analyze the situation here and make that decision. It is not going to be very easy because of our culture and how society is in Dominica. What is the culture of Dominica? Being gay is a death sentence. We have been murdered. I've known friends that have been beaten because of their sexuality living in Dominica. Walk the street and you find a bunch of guys pull up on the block and they notice that you're gay. 
and they choose to just you know what i don't like the party boys they say look at party boy passing look at faggot passing and they just out of their own intention choose to pelt a stone pelt a bottle at you because they don't like faggots they don't like gay persons it's not that you have done them anything it's just that they see you do not do the things that they do so there is that negative treatment towards you so that's why i keep saying society and culture has a lot to do with who we are as lgbti persons what does chap hope to do for the lgbtqi community here in dominica we hope that one day there will be a little more tolerance and acceptance among the population in dominica because one of the things that we battle is acceptance there is more tolerance to lgbti persons opposed to acceptance we're hoping that one day that the government will make amendments or bogry law not that we as lgbti persons want to walk on the street and be all cuddling up and kissing but if you look at in terms of accessing health and basic human rights i think the government should look at that and we will hope that we'll be more visible we're still underground group and we're looking for one day to have our own office and be very visible so these are the things that we hope to achieve in the years to come how can we help we need funding currently we meet at a friend's home or we use the offices of the hiv and aids prevention unit but what we really need now we need funding to help build capacity among the community run our program and get a safe space with a safe space, we are able to do more to assist the community better. We have submitted quite a bit of proposals that have not been funded. People wanting to get you funding or to help out, who would they contact? They contact me. I'm the coordinator of the group currently until next election and they kick me out. <laughs> but for now, I am the link for the LGBT community in Dominica. Most persons like um, go through the National HIV and program they refer you to me because I am that link with the community, with the National HIV and AIDS Response Program, with other, any organization like the Dominica Planned Parent Association who wants to work with the LGBT community, go through me. What is happening in April? April, we have this OECS, Organization of Eastern Caribbean States, Key Populations Dialogue. The theme beyond where we are is our turn to make a difference. Is that open to the public? We have put out notices to get persons to attend. You want to participate in this conference, contact CHAP. So who is going to be at this OECS regional conference? It's, we were targeting the OECS islands. It's going to be LGBT persons, key population persons. From, from all, all the Caribbean. Caribbean. Going to come here to Dominica from April 18th to the 21st. If people want to get in touch with your organization. We do have a, a Facebook page, CHAP Dominica, or via email chapdominicalive.com. Fantastic. I want to thank you for taking the time to come and talk to me. It is incredibly courageous for you to be standing up and representing the LGBT community on Dominica and in the Caribbean to make things better for everyone on the planet. And I applaud you for that. I really do. Thank you for inviting me to come to let persons know that here in Dominica, there is an LGBT community that is working for the advancement and betterment of the people in Dominica. Many thanks to Sylvester Baptiste and to all the strong and brave LGBTQI people in the Caribbean. This is Vosh Bodhi. Follow me on Twitter at JustVosh. Remember, if you have a story to tell, TTV, talk to Vosh.
I want to, uh, I know a lot of people in Dominica are listening, so I want to just send a shout out to Joshua and to Renee and Lizanne that are in uh, St. Martin. Thank you so much for making my trip so memorable. I was hoping you'd say that. I'm just really, I just love the courage that it takes for him to say on one hand, yeah, I, you know, we, our lives are in danger and we're doing a conference. I was fantastic. Um, yeah, amazed by that. It's like, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not the resort image of the Caribbean because it looks like paradise. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. It can be. And it's different for uh, people coming and visiting, gringos yeah. visiting, mm-hmm. uh, versus people who live on an island where everyone knows you mm-hmm. or knows someone that you know. I mean, the degrees of separation are really, really small. But, you know, you get pushed certain distances and all of a sudden you got to fight. You got to fight. Yeah. And they're fighting. And thank you for bringing us a story that we'd never hear anywhere Anywhere else. else. And so if you'd like to hear more of these stories, why don't you just go to kpfk.org and become a member of this fine radio station for a scant, a scant $25. Yeah. kpfk.org. And there's no better way of showing us that you really care about this stuff than joining us. Yes. And your membership does make a difference. I mean, We're reaching around the planet to change it, and you can help. And when you do sign up for membership, there is a spot where you can put in the little note box that you're you're doing this because you listened to IMRU and you heard it here. And we're just looking for four members this hour, just four. Four members, $25. And if one of those is you, we will be ever so grateful. Well, still to come, Steve Pride reports from the exhibit floor of WonderCon. And we'll talk with a gay power couple behind a new documentary about photographer Robert Maplethorpe. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Walt Whitman, father of modern American literature, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Walt Whitman was born in 1819 in Long Island. Receiving only five years of schooling, he apprenticed himself as a printer. He recorded observations and notebooks, which evolved into the poems published in 1855 as Leaves of Grass. Because they lacked meter and rhyme and a number spoke of homosexual desire, the poems were considered scandalous. While in Washington, Whitman met Peter Doyle, who said, quote, We were awful close together. Their relationship would last for the rest of Whitman's life. Although he remained closeted, he gave voice to same-sex desire and inspired many in the modern gay rights movement. Whitman's persona was best described by a fellow poet in 1882, quote, He is the grandest man I have ever seen, the simplest, most natural, and strongest character I have ever met in my life, said Oscar Wilde. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRAR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Mike Heinerman. Hi, I'm Chaz Bono and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out loud and proud since 1974. On KPFK-FM 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 93.7 San Diego, 99.5 Ridgecrest China Lake, and streaming online at kpfk.org. Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Abby Dees. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Vosh Bodhi. Well, it's sometimes written off as the little sister to San Diego's Comic-Con, but with a move to Los Angeles from Anaheim, WonderCon is a big girl now, and Steve Pride reports from this weekend's convention. It's Friday, March 25th, the opening day of WonderCon at the Los Angeles Convention Center. I'm Steve Pride, reporting for the convention floor at the Prism Comics booth. For over a decade, Prism Comics has been the leading organization for queer-friendly comic books, writers, artists, and educators. 
My name is Alex Wolfson. I have two books. I have Artifice, which is a science fiction story, and The Young Protectors, which is an ongoing superhero story. Both are meant to be really strong genre stories first, but with heroes who just happen to like guys. What's the reaction been to The Young Protectors? Well, so far, very positive. I feel very lucky in that just last year, I was able to quit my day job, and this is how I support myself. It's with my comics, and in the Young Protectors in particular. How important is Prism Comics as a group? Well, I think Prism Comics is very important. I never would have gone to any conventions without Prism Comics. They were the ones who introduced me to conventions. The very first convention I ever went to was as a booth partner for Prism. I find them invaluable, actually. I think that in terms of nurturing new creators, and also in terms of providing a safe haven and also a place for LGBT fans and readers to come within a mainstream convention like this, I think it's invaluable. How important are queer comics? Well, I think that it's actually a matter of life and death. I think that the stories we see in the world kind of give us a ceiling and a floor for what we can expect in our own lives. And I think in the past, when you had LGBT characters, they were considered expendable at best. And at worst, they were considered sort of marked for death and misery. I think it's very important to have comics that are out there that actually can show that LGBT people um, of all stripes can be heroes so that they can see themselves as heroes. What is the intersection of the geek culture and the gay culture? In some ways both have been marginalized unfairly, obviously. I mean that's an easy one to go for. But I think you also can be defined by what you like and I think that would be another intersection that you would see there. And so I think what you find is a lot of LGBT people who are also serious geeks. I think that it's probably a greater proportion of LGBT people who are into speculative fiction and into kind of geeky things than perhaps in the mainstream population. Where can we go for more information about your work? Well, you can go to my website, which is AMW Comics. You can also read each of the individual comics for free online. So to read this as a science fiction story, that's artificecomic.com, A-R-T-I-F-I-C-E comic.com, and youngprotectors.com. That's Y-O-U-N-G-P-R-O-T-E-C-T-O-R-S.com. I'm David Reddish, and I wrote the Sex, Drugs, and Superheroes series. So the books are Sex, Drugs, and Superheroes, and the sequel, Conquest of the Planet of the Geeks, and they are about the Comic-Con subculture. They're set in San Diego at Comic-Con, and it's all about the mayhem and the people that go there. Is there an intersection of gay and geek? It's a big, multi-lane intersection, actually. There's so many parallels between superheroes and the way gay people have to live their lives in so many ways. You know, the gay geek thing, it's the same thing to me. They're sort of inseparable in my mind. Where can we get more information about your work? You can go to sexdrugsuperheroes.com. Hello, my name is Elizabeth Beyer, and I have an autobiographical series called Bisexual Trials and Errors, which centers around dating men and women and the perils of having huge crushes. I also have a book called I Like Your Headband, A First Crush Story, and as the title suggests, it's about my first crush ever. And I have one book called We Belong, Stories and Portraits from the Lexington Club, which is about a bar in San Francisco that is unfortunately gone now. What's the biggest misunderstanding about the bi community? I think the biggest misunderstandings come when a bisexual person happens to marry or become in a long-term relationship with a person of the opposite gender. People think that their queerness is sucked away from them. But in fact, that person is still just as queer as before. And it's silly because like, the whole point is bisexual like choices, options. They think that to be queer looks like a certain thing. But to be queer can look like so many things. It's about 
how you carry yourself in the world, who you like, who you have loved in the past. It's not just about who you're with now. So yes, bisexuals should have pride no matter who it is that they're with. How will we find out more information about you and your books? My website is elizabethdrewyou.com. So Elizabeth, D-R-E-W-Y-O-U.com. Hi, I'm John Macy, and I'm on the board of Prism Comics, and I handle the Queer Press Grant. I'm also the author of Talony and Camille and Fearful Hunter. How's it going here at WonderCon? Well, this is a really exciting time for us because we're announcing the grant winner. We're also getting ready to launch the LGBTQ AIU Comics Creators from Prism Comics. And those are all the people from the Prism Comics Queer Press Grant. And I get to announce who won the grant this year. And right now, I'm the only person who knows. So I'm just busting, busting up. And uh, it's just something that is very important. Not just the money we get, we get $2,000 for their printing costs, but it's just the validation. And right now, there's some micro grants out there, but there's no real grant or award for queer comics. The Lambda Literary Award has opened up to graphic novels, but there's something really heartwarming when you see somebody who's a new cartoonist, somebody who's like asexual, who's not getting represented out there, and they get the grant and it's just you just see them proud of themselves. How do straight how do less fabulous folk react to the Prism Comics booth? Well, a couple years ago, people used to come to the booth, they look, oh, comics and they and then they start realizing it's all lesbian and gay comics and then they would get this kind of frightened deadman stare and they would run off. But I have noticed that since queer marriage passed, there's people who come up and they're just like, oh, well, I'm not gay or lesbian, but I'm curious about all this because I've heard about it. And they're not scared. There's something about because of this ruling from the Supreme Court, people are more comfortable. It's okay. We don't have to be afraid of us anymore. And now they tell us stories about their queer grandchildren. It's really sweet. Everything is, it's been very nice. Is there a website for more information on PRISM and on you? There's prismcomics.org for PRISM Comics. And I'm at uh, Northwest Press is my publisher. Reporting from the Prism Comics booth on the floor of WonderCon 2016 in Los Angeles, this is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. If there's a convention, Steve Pride will be there. And thank you for going. I know. know. He does it all. WonderCon, DragCon. If you want to know what's really happening at any convention, just go straight to Steve Pride. Yeah, don't don't, don't even, ask me. Yeah, don't even bother <laughs> talking to us. Don't look at me. Well, if one man changed an art form, it was photographer Robert Maplethorpe. And the couple behind World of Wonder have taken their own snapshot of the controversial artist with the documentary Maplethorpe, Look at the Pictures. Steve Pride has the 411. Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado are the undisputed kings of reality TV with shows like Million Dollar Listing, Big Frida, Queen of Bounce, and the RuPaul Drag Race franchise. But they are also documentarians with films like The Eyes of Tammy Faye, The Strange History of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Becoming Chaz, and now they've turned their attention to a subject who always loved attention, Robert Maplethorpe. I'm Randy Barbado, co-director, co-producer of Maplethorpe Look at the Pictures. I'm Fenton Bailey, co-producer and co-director of Maplethorpe Look at the Pictures. Well, I assume it's about Maplethorpe, but what else is this documentary about? Photography being recognized as a fine art. Because when Maplethorpe started out taking photographs, 
it certainly wasn't recognized as a fine art. You wouldn't go to gallery openings and there wasn't a market for fine art photography. And Mabel that really played a key role in turning it into something recognized as a fine art. The film Maplethorpe Look at the Pictures is also about the art scene in New York in the 70s. It was in some ways the end of innocence of <laughs> art in New York. Or it was a tipping point for a different kind of artist. And I think Maplethorpe was at the forefront of that, along with Warhol. But just this idea that your ambition could be part of who you were and part of what made you unique. Prior to Maplethorpe, people would sort of not be very open about their ambition to become great artists. There's a lot about his ambition in the film. Talk about that. Ambition is kind of seen as a dirty word. Even today, I think, we sneer at the Kardashians, for example. We see them as fame seekers and desperate. And really, I mean, in the 70s, the idea of the artist was someone who was starving in their garret, producing beautiful work, waiting to be discovered. I think Maplethorpe was impatient with that and felt that it wasn't enough just to make beautiful things. You really had to hustle and get the work out there, get the work placed in prestigious galleries, get the work placed with wealthy collectors, become famous. And he spent a lot of time courting writers because they became his friends, but they became his friends because they would write about him. And he knew that fame was really important to leverage his work and to establish himself as an artist. And so I think you see this change from the artist starving in their garret to the artist as a celebrity, bold-faced name, who's a brand, who's a business. Randy and I were living in the East Village in the, in the 80s, and we never met Maplethorpe. We never knew him personally, but we certainly knew of him. The name Maplethorpe was already a name to be conjured with. I mean, he, he was already a brand, really. What was the hardest part of doing the film? Our feelings about the subject. We've made a lot of films about people who are sort of overexposed yet under-revealed. Most of the people we turn our camera on are perceived as outsiders. They are often people at the beginning of the process that we connect with their humanity for some reason, whether it was Tammy Faye or Monica Lewinsky. With Maplethorpe, it wasn't really like that for us. At the beginning of this process, we were very ambivalent about our feelings towards him. So it was kind of challenging. You know, it's so much easier when you really have a connection with who you're making a film about, like a deep emotional or heartfelt connection. And that eventually happened with us in Maplethorpe, but it took over a year for that mm -hmm. to really happen. We kept saying, oh, I don't know if I like him. <laughs> but ultimately, weirdly, some of the very things that I think a lot of people might walk away from the film saying, mm, not sure, those are some of the things that we really liked about him, like his naked ambition, because those are the things that contributed to his authenticity, to his being living a true, open, authentic life and never kind of editing himself. That's a big thing, especially back then, to be as open and brazen and honest about all the aspects of his life, those are the characteristics that we ended up liking and finding the most admirable. A lot of people told us how seductive he was. And I guess ultimately he seduced us. 
because, <laughs> yes, he was out. He was a gay man at a time when a lot of artists, you know, there's always been gay people and there's always been people who were out. But the art world actually wasn't, even though it was very, there were a lot of gay people in it, it wasn't a very out world in the 70s. And he was always out. But he was out of the closet in every sense. And I think even in the sense of showing us what he was doing, of being transparent about what he was doing, being open about his ambition, honest about the use of his relationships. You know, he said about Sam Wagstaff, his sugar daddy patron, he said, yeah, you know, if Sam hadn't had the money, I might not have uh, taken up with him. You know, in some ways, he was like a, a documentarian. He just wanted to tell the truth and to be authentic, even if it wasn't necessarily flattering about him. The film helps you understand that here was this guy who sort of really goes on this journey in his short life and pursues his curiosity to the fullest. So it is exciting in that way. And we were on that journey as well as we were making the film. Also, for him at one point to just stop dating and sleeping with white men and to become fully obsessed with the black male form. And that's something that just was part of his development. So I love that he pursued all his curiosities and photographed them, documented it. Yeah, I love that quote from Maplethorpe talking about his childhood, saying early on he knew he wanted to be an artist, whatever that was. He didn't even know what an artist was or what an artist did or what it involved, but he knew he wanted to be one. I think that speaks volumes about the man. And ultimately, his life was his art. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. we made lots of discoveries making this film. And by the way, one of them was how amazing his art is because the film also really tracks his evolution as an artist. And there's a lot, we have almost 500 images in the film. I mean, you really get to see his body of work in a major way and, and in an exciting way, especially his early work that many people probably have never seen. But it was not just the physical manifestation of his art that made him a great artist. It was the way he led his life. It was the person who he was. Like his brother Edward Maplethorpe said, he was fully consumed by it. He lived the life, and that's what his art was. That's why we say he was a documentarian, because his life was the work of art. And then the pictures, and he said this himself, the pictures were second to that. And the, the role of the pictures was to document this work of art that was his life. And then, of course, the writers he courted, their role was to write about it. So there would be pictures and there would be words to put them all together. And you have this Maplethorpe, one massive work of art. You know, I think the best documentaries are the ones that really document someone's journey. Did you know going in what that journey was? For us, it was a journey of discovery along the way. For example, although we knew we were going to open the film with Jesse Helms ranting, look at the pictures, believe it or not, we didn't realize that should be the title of the film until we were almost done editing. So mm -hmm. there were some things we discovered along the way. We also discovered as an artist, we could understand him and relate to him as a documentarian. We loved making documentary films, and, and Maplethorpe was definitely a documentary kind of guy. He wanted his ephemera and memorabilia to be in a museum. You know, he wanted that mineshaft membership card to be handled with rubber gloves. Yeah, totally. 
I mean, that's what also made it very difficult to make the film. It took a little over two years to make the film, which is kind of short in some documentary standards, but it took a lot of time to figure it out. One of the big discoveries was, though he is a singular artist, Maplethorpe, we kind of discovered he was a serial collaborator. He didn't just do it on his own. Again, he himself said, taking photographs of someone is a very intimate collaboration and that the subject is as important as the person taking the picture. And he collaborated in lots of ways with lots of people in a very strategic way. In the film, you have Bob Colicello, the editor of Interview, talking about how Maplethorpe sort of wooed him because Bob Colicello could help him and sent him off on assignments with high society, which immediately put Robert where he needed to be in terms of showing his work to wealthy people who could buy it. But also even his lawyer, Michael Stout, who's the president of the foundation, Robert had a long relationship with him, not a physical relationship, working relationship, and set up the foundation before he died to continue his legacy. And I think these twin exhibitions at Lacroix and Getty are very much, you have to recognize the agency of Maplethorpe in anticipating this kind of reputation for him. He planned it all. That's what's so incredible. He planned it all and he collaborated with a lot of people. What was your biggest surprise about Robert Maplethorpe in making the film? That we came out liking him as much as we did. I think the other big surprise is how much work he produced in such a short period of time and how much of it is amazing. What has it done for the queer community that these things are now hanging in museums? I mean, I don't think Robert Maplethorpe was an activist. I don't think you would find him marching in a gay pride parade. But he made things visible that were invisible. And he generally didn't believe in shame or apologizing And so in every sense, I think he helped break down the idea of the closet. When he was taking photographs, number one, no serious artist was using the medium of photography, really. And number two, you certainly didn't take photographs of intimacy and sexuality. That was considered pornography. And Maplethorpe said, no, 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 hang on a second, this isn't true. And again, it's hard for us to imagine what it was like before Bruce Weber, Marky Mark, Calvin Klein, before the male body was commodified. But it's because of Maplethorpe, in fact, that we now can look at male nudes and enjoy them and they can be used in advertising because absolutely it was unheard of. It was scandalous. It was considered disgusting to be showing male nudity and and the kind of sexuality and sex that he had no problem shooting. And people told him he was going to ruin his career if he shot these kinds of things. And he stuck to his guns. And I think he was right. And I think that as the gay world becomes more mainstream and assimilates straight, it's important for us to remember and give props to the outsiders and the outlaws of our community because they broke down walls and barriers while most everyone was in the closet, including a huge majority of the art world who were incredibly closeted. I mean, he was a sexual outlaw who was 
taking the movement forward. Again, he was never political in the traditional sense. And there are probably many people in the gay community who would find what he did then and now outrageous and not moving things forward for gays and lesbians. But I think on the contrary, and he himself has talked about how his art is about opening up people's minds. Mm. You know, that's what art is about. And that's what his art is about. And that's why we believe also that it's even some of the most explicit of his work is the most important because it challenges people the way they should be challenged. This has been a conversation with Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado about their documentary, Maplethorpe, Look at the Pictures. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. I want you. Maplethorpe, Look at the Pictures, is playing at the Music Box Theater in L.A. and makes its debut debut on HBO a week from today. And both the Getty Museum and LACMA, the County Museum, are currently running major retrospective shows of Maplethorpe's work. So run out and catch some of it. And just a reminder that... We here at IMRU have a goal to try to get four, just four, four. members mm-hmm. to support IMRU. All you have to do is go to kpfk.org. Um, membership is $25. Um, just show us a little love. We want to thank the one person who has already gone in and joined and become a member. Yes. We just want three more because stations like KPFK, People Station, are the ones that are on the forefront of making sure that all rights and all voices are heard. And apparently that one person is Steve in Venice. So thanks to you, Steve in Venice. Thank you. And it's true. There just isn't a lot of resource and time to get shows like this and get stories like we bring on other shows and other networks. They do a great job. But we really are here for you. And we need members. We need we need to just know that you guys are listening and that it means something to you. And even if you can't be a member tonight, just Check us out. Go on kpfk.org. Show your love. And it's not just about us in this show. This is a fine station with a lot to offer. Uh, but when you do go and get your membership, please mention that you know. heard it here on <laughs> IMRU because we, we get the credit. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that is the end of our ride. We know you have a lot of choices on the radio dial and appreciate that you took your journey with us tonight. Our thanks to tonight's director, Matthew McLaughlin, the coordinating producer, Steve Pride, our board op, Federico Garcia, and our Garcia. How did that come out so poorly? I know this man's name. And our Rainbow Minute producers, Jed Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is always posted by Tuesday-ish. And it's not too late to go to kpfk.org and become a member. Become a member of KPFK. Let them know that you are listening to IMRU and just help support us and everybody on KPFK. This really is a unique station. And And we appreciate that. And we need members. You know, (laughs) members are what makes us go around. We'll close with a song that's a nod to WonderCon from bisexual singer-songwriter Candy Kane. Here's Superhero. Good night. Good night, everybody, all around the world. I'll keep on fighting. There's no way I'm laying down and dying. I'm wonderful.
keep on flying There's no way 